Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. I invite you to turn with me to two passages of Holy Scripture, the first being Psalm 2, and then we turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Let us hear the Word of God. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Our second scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, the verses 1 and 2, and these words also form our text. And there we read as follows, After two days was the feast of the Passover, and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft or trickery, and put him to death. But, they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word. Dear friends, throughout history, many plots have been devised to overthrow great leaders. And all of these plots are full of intrigue and deception, and they almost all involve terrible bloodshed. But of all of the plots to overthrow great leaders in the past, none is more infamous than the plot to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. In a few weeks from now, we hope once again to mark the occasion of the death of Jesus Christ. And to that end, I plan to preach a short series of sermons, all from the Gospel of Mark, focusing on the events leading up to his death. And we'll begin with the plot by the religious leaders of the Jews to put Jesus to death, which is recorded for us in the words of our text, Mark 14, the verses 1 and 2. Let us examine these verses under this theme, the plot to kill Jesus. And we'll consider two thoughts. First of all, the wicked strategy behind this plot. And secondly, the providential direction of this plot. The events of our text took place two days before the Passover. And so two days before our Lord was crucified. Jesus and the disciples were in Jerusalem. And while they were there, Jesus led his disciples to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a high hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And he went there in order to teach his disciples. 
There he delivered his so-called Olivet Discourse, named after the Mount of Olives, which is recorded in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 23 and 24. In the discourse, Jesus spoke to the disciples about the signs of the times, his second coming, and the judgment that would follow. Now, while Jesus was meeting with his disciples, an important meeting of another kind was taking place in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the Jews had assembled in order to figure out a way whereby they could put Jesus to death. Mark records it as follows. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Now, why did the Jewish leaders want to put Jesus to death? There are at least several reasons for this. First of all, they were jealous. Jesus was immensely popular with the people. Only a few days before, they had welcomed him into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey. And as he made his way toward the city, they threw their coats down on the ground for him to ride on. They cut down palm branches and waved them, crying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Even the children shouted and sang his praises. Seeing this, the religious leaders were incensed. They even urged Jesus to tell them to stop. But Jesus refused, and that made them even more angry. Secondly, they were fearful. Many Jews resented Roman rule. Some of them, the zealots, actively resisted it. And the religious leaders realized that if they went ahead and made Jesus their king, that the Romans would come and impose martial law. They themselves would then lose their positions of power and privilege. This is exactly what is confirmed by John chapter 11. There we are told that at the meeting of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to know what could be done to stop Jesus. And they said, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Upon hearing this, Caiaphas the high priest stood up and said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. And then from that day on, we read in verse 53, they plotted to put him to death. The point is, the Jewish leaders had much to lose if Jesus was left unchecked, and so they plotted to kill him. The third reason why they wanted him dead was because they were personally offended by him. They were offended by the fact that Jesus did not observe their man-made traditions. For example, what was and what was not permissible in their view on the Sabbath day. They were also offended by some of the things that Jesus said. He said, for example, that he had the power to forgive sins, that he was the Son of Man, that he was equal with God that unless you ate his flesh and drank his blood, you had no life in you. These and other sayings of Jesus offended the Jewish leaders deeply, and so they plotted to kill him. There was only one problem. How could they do this? Mark chapter 12 records how several times they had tried to trap Jesus in his words, but to no avail. 
Every time they tried, Jesus turned their words back on them, rendering them utterly speechless. So how then could they put him to death? They had nothing to pin on him. And so they thought of a plan, a wicked plan. They would take Jesus by trickery. It appears from this that the leaders planned to trump up false charges against Jesus and to secure false witnesses to testify against him. And that, in fact, is actually what happened. We read in the Gospels that at Jesus' trial, some men claimed that Jesus had said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, Jesus had, in fact, said this, but he was referring to the temple of his body, namely that three days after his death, he would rise again. But his false accusers interpreted him literally. They were trying to accuse him of blasphemy against the temple. The point is, they were not able to make any charge stick. And so they decided to put him to death by trickery. We're reminded here of the words of Psalm 2, which we read earlier. In Psalm 2, the psalmist imagines the rulers of the earth banding themselves together against the Lord. And he writes this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist here speaks of the kings of the earth and the rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why are they doing this? Because they resent being subject to him. And so they plot, albeit vainly, to break their bonds in pieces and to cast away their cords. And that's precisely what is going on here. The leaders of the Jews are gathering together, meeting together in secret to plot the overthrow of King Jesus. This is confirmed by what we read in Acts 4, verse 25 and following. There the disciples quote this same psalm in reference to the events surrounding the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point is the agents behind the plot to kill Jesus were the religious leaders, both secular and religious. They together conspired to put him to death. Now we can learn a number of lessons from this. First of all, we learn what great opposition there is in the heart of sinful man towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The religious leaders of the Jews are just a case in point. How they hated him. They hated him so much that they plotted to take away his life. And so it is for every man who was born into the world still today. Man by nature is an enemy of Christ. He hates him. He wants to have nothing whatsoever to do with him. And he shows his contempt for him by using his name as a common curse word. Well, you say, how then can anyone be saved? Well, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. God must change man from the inside out. He must give him a completely new nature. He must open his eyes to see his sin and the consequences for his sin. And then he must cause him to see that Christ is the only one who can deliver him from his sin. And until he does this, man is completely at enmity with Christ. Secondly, we learn that sometimes the most vicious attacks on Christ come not from outside, but from within the church. Consider these men, these men plotting against the Lord Jesus. Who were they? Not Gentiles, not people from the world. They were Jews. They were members of God's covenant nation, members of the church of God. 
and they were religious leaders, and yet they sought to kill him. Now, this has always been the case throughout the ages. The most serious attacks on Christ and on his cause have come not from the world, but from within the church, usually from so-called ministers and professors of theology. The pattern is usually the same. Professors of theology, ministers, raise questions about the Bible's teaching on various subjects like homosexuality and transgenderism, abortion, capital punishment, so on. And it creates a conflict. It creates disagreement within the church. And so there is controversy. And in order to dispel the controversy, a church synod or council is held. And a study committee is appointed. And the committee listens to both sides of the argument. And they, can, they produce a report. And the report goes out to the denomination. And it solves nothing because it seeks to mediate between the two positions. And in the end, the one side agitates against the other. And inevitably, it's always the side that holds for biblical truth that's dismissed as being divisive and backward-looking. And in the end, accommodations are made and false teaching enters into the church. And after a while, it becomes official and those who don't accept it are booted out. The point is, often the most deadly attacks on Christ and his teaching come not from outside, but from within the church of the Lord Jesus. Such has always been the case, and it still is the case today. Oh, let us therefore always be on guard against such attacks. Let us do everything in our power to defend ourselves and the cause of Christ against these attacks. The purity and the orthodoxy of Christ's church depends upon it. And so the plot to kill Jesus was wickedly devised by the religious leaders. And yet unbeknownst to them, they were completely under God's sovereign control. And that brings us to our second point. We have seen that the Sanhedrin sought to put Jesus to death. They did not want to do so, however, during the Passover feast. Why not? Well, Mark tells us, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, the Passover feast was the greatest feast day in the Jewish calendar. Tens of thousands of people had converged on Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. And many of these people, as we have seen, were sympathetic to the Lord Jesus. They even wanted to make him their king. And the Jewish leaders realized that if they made a move on Jesus now, they might provoke a riot. But as we've also seen, If a riot broke out, the Romans could come and take away their nation and their positions of power and privilege. And so they decided not to do so during the feast. But ironically, as it turned out, this is precisely when our Lord was put to death. On the very day when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. Now, how do we explain this? Well, this is explained in no other way than God's providence. God himself had determined that his son should be put to death and that he should be put to death on the day of the Passover. In fact, he had determined that he would be put to death at exactly three o'clock in the afternoon just before the Sabbath day. That's rather striking. Striking because the Jews and their leaders had tried several times to put Jesus to death. The first time was immediately after his birth when King Herod sought to kill him. The second time was in his hometown in Nazareth when Jesus was preaching 
And they were so incensed at what he said that they sought to throw him over the edge of a cliff. The third time was after the healing of the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. Then, too, the Jews sought to kill him. And there were probably many other attempts on Jesus' life that are not recorded in the Gospels. But whether they are recorded or unrecorded, every single one of them failed. Why? Because it wasn't his time. It wasn't God's time for the Lamb to be slain. God would determine the exact time and circumstance of his son's death and no one else. He and he alone determined that his son should die at the Passover. Why at the Passover? Well, there's at least two reasons for this. First of all, so that many people might witness his death. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, approximately three million people converged on Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover feast. And even if we make allowances for some exaggeration to which Josephus was prone, the point is there were many people in the city. They were there from all over the Roman Empire. And all of this was by divine design. God wanted the entire world to witness the death of his only begotten son. Which also explains why he was crucified on a hill next to a busily traveled road so that everyone might know what had happened, and so that they too might believe on his name. Secondly, God decreed that his son should die on the day of the Passover in order to bring the Passover feast to its ultimate fulfillment. The Passover feast was one of the three great feasts in the Jewish calendar, the other two being the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths. Perhaps the most important of these was the Passover feast. The Passover feast commemorated the fact that on their last night in Egypt, the angel of death passed over the houses of those Israelites whose lintels and doorposts were smeared with the blood of the Passover lamb, thus sparing the lives of the firstborn within. As such, the Passover feast was a feast of deliverance, deliverance from death. Now, by causing his son to die on this particular feast day, God was communicating to his people and also to us that he, his son, was the ultimate Passover lamb. Already early in his ministry, John the Baptist singled him out as the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul writes that Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. And Peter in 1 Peter 18 verse and 20 writes that believers are redeemed not with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And in the book of Revelation, John sees Christ as a lamb that was slain sitting on his throne. Time and time again, Christ is portrayed as a sacrificial lamb. And as such, he brought the feast of Passover to its ultimate and final fulfillment. Bishop J.C. Ryle comments, he says, we cannot doubt for a moment that it was not by chance, but by God's providential appointment that our Lord was crucified in the Passover week and on the very day that the Passover lamb was slain. It was meant to draw the attention of the Jewish nation to him as the true Lamb of God. 
It was meant to bring to their minds the true object and purpose of his death. Every sacrifice, no doubt, was intended to point the Jew onward to the one great sacrifice for sin which Christ offered. But none certainly was so striking a figure and type of our Lord's sacrifice as the slaying of the Passover lamb. It was preeminently an ordinance which was a schoolmaster unto Christ. And we learn at least two lessons from this. First of all, we are reminded here that everything that happened to our Lord during the last days of his life on earth happened not by chance, but by the sovereign decree of God. And that's confirmed by several other passages in Luke 22, verse 22. Jesus said, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And in Acts 2, verse 23, Peter declared that Christ was delivered up to death by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And in Acts 4, verse 27, the disciples prayed, saying, For truly against your holy servant Jesus whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy purpose determined before to be done. Again and again the scriptures assure us that our Lord's death was no accident. Our Lord was not the victim of a series of unfortunate circumstances. Whatever he suffered was determined by God from all eternity. In fact, everything that happens in life is determined by God. The Bible says not even a hair can fall from our heads except it be his will. And that means we may rest assured that whatever happens to us in this life happens for a reason. We may not always know the reason, but there is a reason. The same is true for the death of our Lord. God had a plan. He had a purpose for the death of Christ. His plan, his purpose, was to save his people from their sins, and therefore we may trust in him. His atoning work is all that we need. It is God's appointed way of reconciling sinners unto himself. Secondly, we learn that God will accomplish his saving purposes no matter what. Not even the schemes of wicked men can frustrate his plans. The religious leaders of the Jews did not want to put Jesus to death during the feast, but God overruled them. They said, not during the feast, but God said, during the feast. In fact, he said, during the very height of the feast. Again, J.C. Ryle comments, he says, there is comfort in all of this for true Christians. They live in a troubled world and are often tossed to and fro by anxiety about public events. Let them rest assured and the thought that everything is ordered for good by an all-wise God. Let them not doubt that all things in the world around them are working together for their Father's glory. Let them call to mind the words of the second psalm, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And yet it goes on, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. It has been so in time past. It will be so in time to come. And so the plot to kill our Lord was predetermined by God himself. For us, that is a comfort, but it was not so for our Lord. The fact that he knew what was going to happen to him only added to his suffering. In Luke 12, verse 49 and 50, he said to his disciples, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. 
But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Our Lord, of course, was referring to the baptism of his suffering and death. He knew that the time was coming when he would be plunged into the waves and billows of God's wrath. And that prospect frightened him. It distressed him. It distressed him so much that the night before he was crucified, he pleaded with his father to please let the cup of his wrath pass from him as he sweat great drops of blood on the ground. Oh, imagine you knew you would have to face the most painful and humiliating death imaginable, and there was nothing you could do about it. Would that not add to your suffering? Better not to know anything at all than to take it as it comes, than to know it and not be able to do anything about it. But for our Lord, that was impossible. He knew every detail of the pain and suffering that awaited him. He knew he would be betrayed by one of his own disciples. He knew he would be delivered up to the Jewish religious leaders. He knew he would be mocked and beaten and spat upon. He knew that ultimately he would be nailed to the cross and be cut off from his father. In fact, he told his disciples these things no less than three times in the weeks preceding his death, and it distressed him. And yet he went through with it. At no time did he ever have second thoughts. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the last bitter dregs. And why did he do it? He did it out of love for his own child of God. Believer today, he loved you so much that he was willing to suffer all this and more so that you and I could be saved. Oh, let us remember that as we proceed through these final chapters of the Gospel of Mark. They are sad chapters indeed, painful chapters. Here we come face to face with unimaginable pain and suffering. Here Christ descends into the deepest pit of hell so that sinners could be saved. Oh, but thanks be to God, that's not the end of the story. For although Christ did die, on the third day he also rose again from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascended up into heaven, and now he sits at the right hand of his Father, ruling, preserving, and defending his church against the attacks of all of her enemies, and he will be victorious. And one day he is coming again. And when he does, he shall defeat all of his and our enemies once and for all. And then every knee shall bow before him. Also those of the Jewish Sanhedrin and of all those who opposed his cause on this earth in this life, And they will be forced to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, we're always appreciative of the fact when we hear from our listeners. If you were blessed by the message you have heard today, or if you were blessed by previous messages on this program, won't you please take a moment and let us know. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can give me a call at 778-982-9102. And please remember to include the call letters of this station.
If you would like to listen to the message you have just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at Banner of Truth Radio. That's all one word, BannerofTruthRadio.com. If you would like more information about the Free Reformed Churches of North America, which sponsors this broadcast, please log on to our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. If the Lord has placed on your heart a desire to help us with the costs associated with this program, you can do so by sending us a check in any amount or making a donation in the donation section of our webpage. We heartily thank you for your support. And now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.